You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as the leaders of France, Germany, Russia and Ukraine meet in Minsk for the latest rounds of talks on the future of Ukraine, we ask what it'll take to avert a full-scale war. But we begin in India, where Prime Minister Narendra Modi has suffered a dramatic setback in state elections in Delhi, where his Hindu nationalist party, the BJP, was trounced by the Aam Admi or Common Man Party. The upstart party won 67 out of 70 seats in the BJP's first electoral setback since Mr Modi won election last year. I'm joined now from Delhi by our correspondent Rahul Bedi. Rahul, can you tell us what exactly happened in this election? Well, this election actually was a rerun of an earlier election, which uh, ended uh, with, uh, it was a bit of a draw last time round, except that the Aam Admi Party, which has uh, triumphed this time round, uh, did form a kind of a coalition government, which lasted 49 days, but then it left. Uh, it resigned uh, just about a year ago in January or February of last year, uh, and elections took place. And uh, they have prevailed. They have not only prevailed, but they've got about nine-tenths of the seat uh, seats uh, in the Delhi Assembly. As you said, they've got 67 of 70 seats. So the BJP has just managed to get three seats, uh, which is a huge surprise because uh, Prime Minister Modi uh, had a very triumphant victory last year in May. Uh, and everybody expected that uh, he too would prevail. And even if he would be defeated, it would be a sort of a photo finish defeat. But uh, it wasn't. So was this a victory for this uh, um, Admi party or was it a defeat for Modi? Well, it was a bit of both. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the common criticisms which is heard all around Delhi uh, is that the um, BJP, which is Modi's party, had become very complacent. They, they were suffering from uh, excess of hubris uh, and uh, they were really old wine in old bottles. Uh, and they weren't really doing very much, and they made a lot of promises, uh, and uh, they hadn't managed to deliver on any of them, whether it's economic or social or law and order or security. Uh, but also people were very fed up of uh, corruption, rise in prices, pollution, uh, non-governance, non-functioning of the city of Delhi. Uh, and Aam Admi, in fact, uh, catered to those very fears of, uh, of people in Delhi and promised uh, more security for women. They promised uh, a decline in prices. They promised more governance. Uh, and above all, more responsibility and security for women because Delhi has become the rape capital of India. Uh, and that's become a huge major issue over the last three or four years. And is there any reason to believe that this party will be any different from any of the other parties that have gone before and who have made various promises to the Indian people and and a lot of the time haven't fulfilled them? Well, uh, I think everybody uh, lives on a hope and a prayer. And uh, there seem to be indications that this party is likely to be different because its leader, Arvind Kejriwal, uh, he's an engineer by training, uh, went to one of the prestigious Indian institutes of technology. Uh, he joined government service but left because he was disillusioned. Uh, and he seems to be uh, an idealist who um, has a lot of promise uh, and is perceived to be extremely honest. So it's uh, quite possible that they will, but they've made a mistake because they've, uh, in their election campaign, they've promised a lot of uh, freebies 
to people in Delhi like uh, free, uh, not free, but very cheap electricity, very cheap water, very cheap facilities, uh, which is really a tactical mistake because uh, there is very limited electricity to go around and there's very limited water to go around. And if this party is promising uh, freebies uh, and not delivering, then it will really end up like all the other parties. Uh, but there is some hope that uh, they will be a little different and they will uh, stop corruption at least and provide more security for women. As you mentioned, Rahul, this was a surprise, not least because uh, Narendra Modi has been on the crest of a wave really since he got elected uh, in uh, something of a landslide last year. Certainly internationally, he's been riding high and you recently had President Obama over there for your uh, national day. And uh, what has actually gone wrong for him? Well, again, uh, Modi has been in office for eight months now, and uh, he's made a huge number of promises. And uh, he's concentrated a lot on foreign policy. He's not only been to the U.S. himself, but he's been to Australia, he's been to Fiji, uh, he's been to Japan. Uh, he's been, he has invited uh, Chinese leaders to India who have promised to invest money into, into India's infrastructure, which is uh, creaking and badly in need of, um, of development. Uh, but uh, there has been very little easing of uh, the ease of business on the ground. And the rules, the regulations, the bureaucracy, uh, the traps that remain, and particularly the corruption, uh, is uh, as, uh, as much as it was before. So he hasn't really managed to deliver, and he's raised the expectations of uh, his party so high. Uh, and uh, he has been unable to deliver, so people are quite disillusioned with him. Part of his strategy, at least as uh, as people perceived it, was that he was going to uh, consolidate his grip on power by uh, means of winning for his BJP state elections throughout India and thereby uh, gaining uh, an upper hand in both houses of parliament. Is that strategy now looking as if it's uh, doomed or certainly challenged? No, I wouldn't say it was doomed, but I think uh, the Ahmadmi Party and its leader, Arvind Kejriwal, uh, are going to become are likely to become a rallying point for the opposition forces, uh, which is something that is worrying the BJP. I don't think Modi's program is doomed yet. I think he his uh, his coin uh, has still got some value left in it, and I think uh, Modi um, is going to play that coin a little more circumspectly than he has been. Uh, but the other problem that Modi faces is that there are a lot of Hindu hardline groups that are associated with his BJP party. And uh, these hardline Hindu groups have, an, have a very vicious uh, sectarian agenda. And uh, they have been conducting uh, conversion camps over the last several months. They've been converting Muslims back into Hinduism. There have been a lot of attacks on Christian churches, particularly in the city of Delhi. There have been five attacks on five different churches over the last uh, as many months. Uh, and this agenda is worrying people. And uh, these Hindu hardline groups uh, are on a parallel track with the BJP, and there's likely to be a clash between the two, which is going to be very divisive. And Modi cannot really oppose these groups because he has come to power with their help. Uh, so it's a huge crisis that seems to be developing. And unless Modi steps in and takes some measures to defuse this tension, uh, I think Modi is in for a rough time over the next four and a half years that he's in office. Finally, Rahul, uh, we should spare a thought for the Congress party, once the dominant party in uh, in India. And this election was a complete disaster for them. Yes, total disaster. In fact, it hasn't. Uh, its fortunes haven't been worse because they've got 
no seats in the Delhi uh, State Assembly, uh, which is something uh, unprecedented. And uh, it's primarily because of the leadership of the Congress Party, which is led by the dynastic Gandhi family. And uh, Rahul Gandhi, who's uh, now the, uh, uh, in, in a sense, the executive uh, head of the Congress Party, has proved to be a complete disaster. And there doesn't seem to be any moves to remove him. So I think the Congress Party is doomed to either disappear or remain a bit player in Indian politics if it doesn't do something about its leadership very soon. Rahul Betty in Delhi, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. Fierce fighting has continued in eastern Ukraine ahead of talks in the Belarus capital of Minsk between the leaders of Germany, France, Russia and Ukraine. Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel has warned that the talks could represent the last chance to avert full-scale war in Europe. And President Barack Obama said this week that if diplomacy fails, the United States is ready to arm Ukrainian government forces with lethal weapons. More than 5,400 people have died in eastern Ukraine since the fighting started last April, as Ukrainian government forces and rebels backed by Moscow bombard one another's positions in an effort to capture territory. I'm joined now from Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine by our correspondent Daniel McLaughlin, from Berlin by Derek Scally, and here in studio by Irish Times columnist Paul Gillespie, and by Jane Ann McKenna, director of MSF, Doctors Without Borders, Ireland. Dan McLaughlin, can I start with you and perhaps you could describe the situation on the ground where you are now? Well, there's absolutely no sign of a let-up in hostilities ahead of the Minsk talks tomorrow. We're getting reports from two key areas really today around the, the government control of, uh, controlled town of Kramatorsk, which is now the base for the Donetsk administration that is still loyal to Kiev. Um, there are reports of a missile attack there, uh, several fatalities, several people injured. And it's significant, really, because this is a government-controlled town, and it's an area that hasn't seen any serious fighting for um, getting on for six months uh, since last summer. Um, so reports of, of, of strikes there, which suggest that the rebels are moving closer and they have a capability to strike deeper into government-held territory in the east. And then down on the... Um, uh, in the southeast of the country, um, close to the strategic port of Mariupol, which is still government-controlled, uh, forces loyal to the government are reporting that they are pushing the rebels back towards the Russian border. Um, this is also an area that has been relatively stable for the past uh, three, four months, um, despite sporadic clashes and artillery fire. Um, but if there is really a counterattack from government forces down there, that is a surprise. We didn't think they were strong enough to launch any kind of operation like that down in that area. And the rebels, for their part, deny it. I mean, the, the, the broader picture is really going into the talks tomorrow that government forces are again under extreme pressure in uh, Donetsk and Luzhansk. Uh, the, the, the main area of fighting over the past three, four weeks has been around the, the key railway junction of Dibaltsova. Now, this is a, a, a town that both sides want to control because uh, if the rebels got hold of it, they would have control of a transport junction lying between the areas that they hold in Donetsk and Lugansk regions. There is a danger now of um, uh, the, 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 the rebels encircling government forces that are in Debaltsa and that have been holding out there in Debaltsa for the past few weeks. So a very, very tough situation there. Um, and basically no sign of either side backing down, reducing hostilities, reducing the intensity of fire 
or pulling back forces ahead of the um, ahead of the talks that are due to take place tomorrow. Dan, uh, the Ukrainian government and indeed their Western allies, uh, they characterise this battle as not so much simply a battle between Ukrainian government forces and rebel forces, but actually a battle with effectively Russian forces. What evidence do we have that the rebels are in fact being militarily backed by active Russian forces on the ground? Well, we now have a, 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 an increasing amount of, of photographic evidence from across eastern Ukraine of uh, military equipment, very high-tech military equipment, including the latest armored personnel carriers, the latest modifications to Russian tanks, um, and then smaller weapons, even like the light arms and down to the uniforms that some of the guys are wearing out there. That military experts say um, these things are only available to Russian forces. They don't sell them anywhere else. They don't allow any other military to use them. And there is no explanation to what these pieces of military equipment, very high-tech and very deadly, would be doing in Ukraine in rebel hands unless they were controlled by Russian forces. So seeing such high-tech equipment, but they can only be operated by uh, experienced military engineers, technicians, people with um, a proper in-depth training and, and specialized training in using these weapons. And experts, again, say that it's not possible for guys who may have been working in the local steelworks or the local mine until a few weeks ago to suddenly step into the latest armored personnel carrier or, um, or a missile launcher and use them effectively as these, these weapons are being used against Ukrainian government forces in the east. We also see, uh, for example, at, at the Munich conference at the weekend, we saw President Petro Poroshenko of Ukraine brandishing what he said were Russian passports, Russian um, military identification papers. Now, that, that wasn't really, that wasn't necessarily convincing, but when you put it together with all the other evidence and lots of other photographic evidence we've seen of Russian military identifications alongside uh, rebel military identifications, clearly for the same people, identifying the same people. Um, and when you consider that, you know, supposedly this is a ragtag militia fighting against um, government forces, um, and you see that the rebels are having considerable success against those, against those government forces. And it all goes together to, to make a picture in which it is almost impossible to explain what's going on in the East without the presence of a well-trained, well-armed government troops coming across a border with uh, Russia that is still absolutely open. Russia, we should remember, still refuses to close its border with rebel-held areas of Ukraine. So anything and anyone can still cross those borders. Uh, without any kind of checks or control. Uh, Jane-Anne McKenna, uh, your organization, MSF, has a number of medical facilities operating in eastern Ukraine. What is the experience of the civilian population that you're hearing from there? I suppose we've seen that the the situation for the civilians on the ground is really catastrophic. You know, we've um, we're scaled up in terms of our teams on the ground responding to the recent surge in violence over the last number of weeks. But we can see even just in the last two weeks alone that five hospitals have either been damaged or destroyed through shelling. So, you know, we know that medical facilities are being hit. An already quite precarious situation is now being stretched beyond capacity. We have very committed doctors and nurses on the ground, national and local people working in these hospitals 
hospitals. But essentially now they're getting to breaking point. We've had to supply numerous medical facilities or medical materials and uh, medicines over the last six months. And it really is that level of supplies that have been cut off over the last number of months and where we're seeing a really, I suppose, the capacity being stretched. And they're being cut off by whom? Well, a lot of the um, uh, the social services, um, particularly in the rebel held areas, have been cut off, and we're seeing that that is impacting really the most vulnerable. So, people who have been dependent on the state for care, people who are in psychiatric institutions, in prisons, in care homes, in orphanages, are being the worst affected by this. And in terms of these medical facilities that have been damaged by bombardments, uh, do you have any idea if these were all accidental attacks? We don't know if they're specifically targeted or if it was due to indiscriminate shelling uh, why they were damaged. But, you know, it is very worrying the fact that um, there's very few places now for people to go and get medical assistance, particularly those who are wounded, but also people who have chronic illnesses or people who've been living in, uh, in very precarious situations or have been displaced over the last number of months as well. And is this a question of one or both sides uh, recklessly uh, attacking uh, uh, built up uh, heavily populated areas or is that simply where the war is being conducted? It, it's essentially it's on the front line that we're seeing that this is happening we're working on both sides we can see that the impact the, the devastating impact this is really happening to civilians on both sides of, the conf- of this conflict and indeed you know the, the impact this is having on the medical teams on the ground the local medical staff who are persevering and who are, who've remained committed but now essentially are really in fear of their lives in working in some of these facilities and it's becoming a major issue at the moment Derek Scally in Berlin. Angela Merkel is leading this peace effort uh, in Minsk. What is she hoping to achieve from the meeting tomorrow? Well, she uh, she laid out her stall in Munich at the security conference at the weekend. She was literally just hours after meeting Vladimir Putin in in Moscow, and she really had two messages for the um, for the delegates in Munich. One was, we have no. She sees no alternative to continuing with sanctions and giving them time to kick in and pursuing the path of diplomacy. And she was challenged from the floor from U.S. visiting senators, from Malcolm Rifkin, from uh, the former British uh, foreign secretary. And she basically knocked them back and she said, I'm not utopian to believe that diplomacy is our best bet. She says, unfortunately, I cannot imagine a situation where supplying Ukraine with even defensive arms would impress or or strike such fear into Vladimir Putin's heart that he thinks he can lose militarily. So that was one stark message. And and the second stark message I thought was quite remarkable. She drew a comparison to her own background growing up in East Germany. And she said, I grew up behind the Berlin Wall behind the Iron Curtain. The West did not intervene in 1961. It was 15, 16 years after the end of the Second World War, and the West decided it wasn't worth it. It was not in their strategic interest to start a Third World War over the Berlin Wall. And this is what her um, her officials are saying in the background. They don't want to start a war over this. And that's quite a remarkable thought that um, the Ukraine will just have to perhaps put up with some sort of carve-up or division, and um, the West will put up with quite a bit while pursuing its diplomatic efforts. So that quite shocked some people in, in Munich. But um, ahead of the uh, talks 
in Minsk, uh, she's definitely holding some cards close to her chest, and she's not too impressed that other people, particularly in Poland, are coming out saying that weapons, delivering weapons to uh, Ukraine, even if they are just defensive, um, is, is basically the, the final means. So what we're seeing really in Europe, obviously there's been a lot of attention on the on the, the potential for a rift with, between Europe and the US, but there's this other front opening up in Europe between Germany and uh, its Western European allies, and then the, the Baltics and Poland very much on the side of uh, President Poroshenko from Ukraine. So those are the fronts she's dealing with as she goes to Minsk. And Derek, uh, you mentioned this uh, talk of a rift with Washington, and uh, certainly there seems to be rather different tones coming out of Washington. President Obama said that he's prepared to go with diplomacy, but if diplomacy fails, that he's also prepared to consider arming the uh, the Ukrainian government forces with lethal weapons. Is this a kind of a good cop, bad cop routine, or is it a real divergence of views? I think there. Um, it's at the moment he's prepared to give Angela Merkel the time she wants to pursue diplomacy. But I think um, Angela Merkel has not said whether she has prepared to to go a hard way. I mean, polls last week said that Germans do not want this, and uh, I think the, the the line I was getting from her officials off the record last week really was that they don't want to start any military conflict, and that may be seen as a sign of weakness. But this is Europe we're talking about, and for for U.S. hawks to talk tough is all very well, but uh, this is uh, in Europe's backyard. So we really don't know at this stage uh, how much pressure President Obama will be facing from people like uh, John McCain, who was basically accusing um, Angela Merkel of of engaging in appeasement, the equivalent of uh, the deal with Hitler in in in, in Munich uh, before the Second World War over the Sudetenland. So uh, she's very much under pressure, and um, I think the uh, pressure from Poland, from from the Baltics, they're very much saying we warned you about this before, and they're slightly feeling left out of the diplom- diplomatic effort now. I mean, Poland was very active early on in the Ukraine crisis, and now they're be- they're not being invited to Minsk, so they're uh, annoyed on two fronts. Uh, they very much take the, the more hawkish U.S. line, and they're also slightly concerned that Angela Merkel has learned a very different lesson from her time behind the Iron Curtain than they did. Derek, do we know anything about the kind of deal that she's talking about? Is it actually a, a territorial carve-up she's talking about? This seems to be where we're going. I mean, the, she she insisted in Munich that um, this will very much be on the basis of the previous Minsk agreement. So, but any Minsk too would seem to hand over to uh, the separatists whatever gains they have made, and then there would be a much broader corridor between the um, the Ukrainian government forces and the separatists. Um, and also there would be an issue of a ceasefire on the front line. I think the difference between Minsk II, if we call it, and Minsk I, seems to be a much clearer, rather than a series of points, an actual sequencing of what needs to be achieved to move on to the next point. Um, but uh, this this notion that somehow a carve-up is on the, on the cards is what, if you follow the logical conclusion of what Merkel was saying in Munich, that seems to be what she's saying. Um, so whether that would be about giving uh, devolving power to these eastern regions or something else entirely, that's what people were slightly alarmed about in in Munich. I mean, the, the Latvian foreign minister in Munich, obviously Latvia has the EU presidency at the moment, he said the problem is not proposals here or proposals there, but it's the actual implementation of that. So we're looking at two things. Number one, what is going to be on the table? And number two, how do they propose to make sure Russia sticks to it? 
Paul Gillespie, is Angela Merkel right, if that indeed is the logic of her position, that actually this is going to end up in a carve-up? I think she is fundamentally right. I think she's a realist in a deep sense uh, about this conflict. Uh, The premise that she starts from, that there's no way of winning militarily, in my view, is correct. Um, I think the logic of that is pretty brutal, and it is towards a carve-up. But the, the difficulties that Derek is referring to there have been implicit or explicit uh, in this conflict for years. Uh, the, uh, you're dealing with uh, Ukraine so adjacent to Russia uh, that you have to imagine, supposing Putin was replaced, would there be a different orientation uh, fr- from Russia to this conflict? I don't think there would be fundamentally. Uh, I think I think Merkel is, in her very logical way, uh, reaching such conclusions. If you look at the way that the Ukrainian government has regarded the question of autonomy or federalizing to the east, they fudged on that. They tried to win the battle militarily. Uh, they made remarkable mistakes about the Russian language. Um, uh, so I, I think a lot of these elements are coming back into play. Look who's, who, who's there and who's not at the Minstot. The French are there. Uh, uh, Hollande has said, OK, uh, we can't have uh, Ukraine in NATO. Uh, something similar would have to be said about full membership of the EU for Ukraine, but that's not really on the cards. The British are not there, notably, uh, but actually they're probably supporting Merkel. So the large powers in, in, in Europe, one could say, are largely with her. Now, I, Derek is right to say Poland uh, and, and, and the Baltic states. Uh, it seems to me they're, they're not being sidelined, but there's a, a, a big element of, of real politique coming into this deal, uh, if it can be reached. But can I present to you some of the criticism of this approach that uh, that we're seeing here, which is actually that uh, this uh, Ukraine is just one step in a whole campaign by Putin, which leads to the Baltics, which leads to destabilizing uh, these member states of NATO and of the European Union, and that if we uh, in the West don't put a halt to what Putin is doing now, that that's inevitably what he's going to do, and he only understands strength and doesn't understand weakness. But I, I don't accept that case. I, I think he's much too weak for that. Uh, he's no longer a great world power. It's a, what I would call a great regional power. Uh, if, he, to, if he was to be threatening this in, 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 in Latvia or, or Lithuania, uh, uh, that would be a very, very different thing. If he was to be threatening it uh, with Poland, it's a, a very different thing. It's not. So when you yeah. say it's a very different thing, when Angela Merkel, as Derek said, was speaking, it was make, drawing the comparison with the Berlin Wall and the Berlin Wall being built and the fact that the West Western powers were not prepared to intervene militarily. You're saying that they wouldn't intervene mil- militarily in a in a big way in Ukraine, but they would in uh, defence of the member NATO member states. I think that's. I think that follows. Yes, but I think Putin's able able to read that, uh, and I think uh, the, the the threat, if you like, to what's happening uh, in Ukraine to Russia is of a different order, and he's taking his chances uh, as as Merkel is. So this, uh, they're they're making a read. They're looking for a deal here which would be a sustainable deal, and from Merkel's point of view, I presume she wants to see uh, this in, in the medium to long term transform a situation where they're working with Russia and not against it. Dan McLaughlin, can I ask you what you think in terms of what kind of deal Vladimir Putin can accept in Minsk? I think it's extremely difficult to see um, a deal at the moment that would be 
uh, acceptable to Putin and, of course, to the Ukrainian side. Uh, Ukrainians basically believe that, that, that everything that's going on in the East and that began with, with uh, Crimea at last spring after the, the Maidan revolution is aimed at making sure that this new Ukraine, this new Ukrainian project, um, aimed at turning it into a, a pro-Western country with very close ties with the European Union and, uh, and NATO, turning away from Russia. Um, they believe that Putin is determined to, to, to destroy this to destroy this effort, to destroy this project, um, not only to make sure that Ukraine stays closely tied to Russia, but to make sure that Russians understand that any kind of um, street protest that, 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 that could possibly result in a, in, in a change of power and a change of leader in Russia, um, or indeed in countries neighboring Russia, um, is doomed to failure and is doomed, in fact, to bloody failure. Um, so when Ukrainians see this and they believe this, that this is Putin's ultimate game, uh, an ultimate goal, um, they look to their supporters in the West and they believe that uh, they are in a very, very difficult position because Putin will always be willing to push further and to take more pain than uh, Ukraine's Western backers will. Um, from, from Poroshenko, President Poroshenko's side, um, it will be very difficult for him to offer any concessions to the rebels backed by Russia because um, Ukrainians are very, very angry and they're, they're, they're furious uh, about the way um, this uh, anti-terrorist operation, as it's still called here, is being conducted in the, the missteps and the mistakes that are being made on the battlefield, uh, the losses that are being incurred, um, you know, in terms of, of, of lives as well as financially. And so if, if Poroshenko was to, to try to offer major concessions to Putin and the rebels, uh, there's, a, there's a very great danger that, that he could be turned upon by people who are now more or less uh, tolerating his leadership, even though they consider it to be, uh, to be littered with mistakes. So it's extremely hard to see any kind of compromise deal that would be acceptable for both sides. But, but Dan, if, Dan, if uh, Mr. Poroshenko's Western backers or Ukraine's Western backers were to say, uh, this is the best deal that's available to you, and if you don't take it, then we're not going to back you anymore, uh, what position does he find himself in then? Uh, well, he, he um, would be in a position where he may well be facing another round of major street protests from uh, the, the very, very large constituency here in Ukraine that is uh, deeply dissatisfied with the way the, uh, the uh, conflict is being conducted from Ukraine's side. And also, for, and other things, you know, when, when we look back to the, the, the Maidan revolution and the protest last year, at their roots, they were all about uh, an anti-corruption battle getting rid of the old elite, cleaning up the way the country is run. And those things haven't been done. Those reforms haven't been pushed through. Lots of the old faces are still there. Maybe they're not at the, at the forefront of power, but they're still there in the background. The old schemes are still in operation. Um, there is still a, 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 a huge amount of uh, corruption and, and, and incompetence in the way the country is run. So it would be, um, it would be extremely difficult. Poroshenko would find himself in, a, in an extremely problematic position trying to convince his own people that this is the best deal he could get if he did uh, go and make major compromises, even under pressure from the West, towards the, uh, towards the rebels into Russia. Derek, if we look at Angela Merkel's position here, uh, she has, uh, as you said, she said that uh, she uh, insists there must be a deal. She, doesn't, she wants to avoid uh, a war in Europe at almost all costs. Has she talked herself into a position where she can't leave Minsk without a deal? 
Yes, this was the this was one of the big questions floating over. Uh, she's known for holding her cards close to her chest, but in this, she really has just gone out on a limb in a completely un, uncharacteristic style. She did make one moment. She said um, she couldn't. She was talking and she was asked about how far are you prepared to go and how how credible is diplomacy without weapons in at least in 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 the background. And she did say um, she said I, I can't see any reason to that weapons would be considered um, possible, except if, and then she, she pulled herself up. So I definitely sense that she has held something back, that there is something where she's prepared to go further. Um, but I really don't see, given the situation, um, just the public attitude in, in Germany and in Western Europe, I cannot see, I mean, she's got two fronts here. She's got the people who just don't want military conflict in general. And then there's another constituency in Germany who believe that Russia has a point, that uh, the U.S. has been destabilizing the world order far more than Russia has in the last years. And they buy into a lot of the, the talk about um, Crimea being uh, inherently a part of Russia and so on. So she's dealing with those two, those two constituencies here. But I wouldn't rule out that she has something else, um, because if, if not, as you said, she has gone out, out on a limb or, to mix her metaphors, she's painted herself into a corner. So I wouldn't be surprised what will come out of the, the talks in Minsk. I mean, the one thing we should point out is that the Belarusians are actually saying today they're still actually not 100% sure that the talks are going to happen. Um, and um, it would be terrible to think that this has all been built up so that uh, Vladimir Putin can um, pull down the House of Cards at the last minute. Um, but the Germans are basically working on the process of this happening. They left their diplomats behind in Moscow uh, last week after Merkel left. So we can only hope that there is something working working on in the background that we don't know about. Otherwise, Merkel, as you said, she is, she's shown her hand before she even went into the talks. Uh, Jane Ann McKenna, while all of this talking is going on, the fighting is going on and the suffering is going on in eastern Ukraine, uh, your people on the ground, uh, how long are you going to leave them there or what would it take to drive uh, MSF and its operations out of eastern Ukraine? Well, we're very committed to actually staying and trying to operate insofar as possible inside Ukraine. You know, it is difficult to access some of the more insecure areas, but we will always be assessing the situation on a daily basis, see where we can go. It's our priority really to try and get to some of the more far reaching areas where people are trapped or unable to access humanitarian assistance. Uh, we've recently just deployed last weekend a surgical team on the ground as well to be able to provide some additional capacity and support to the hospitals that are functioning at the moment. So we're continuing reviewing what needs to be done and what additional assistance needs to be there but there are very few aid organisations on the ground it's ourselves and ICRC that are really there operating and there's huge huge immense needs as well Jane Ann McKenna Paul Gillespie Daniel McLaughlin and Derek Scally thank you and that's all from this edition of Worldview you can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com but from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.